Welcome, everyone, to the Unbalanced Note podcast. It is week 300,400 in this quarantine time, but we're still kicking. We're still listening to music. We're still watching movies, and we're still doing live radio and podcasts. I'm Brian Kluger, and I am joined by the host with the most, the man I listen to music and movie scores with daily, Mark Chafferdini. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I love your intros, Brian, and you have the, uh, the four-note composition to my heart. Oh, well, I'm, I'm excited about that. We have a very, very special episode today. We have the the legendary, the thrilling, the, the world champion of music, jazz, trumpet, and music scores, Mark Isham from Los Angeles. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing down there? We are doing excellent here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we're excited to have you on, you know, to talk about all of the music and all of the movies. Uh, and, but first, we just uh, we just want to ask, how are you doing in this lockdown, this quarantine? These are you okay? You and the family okay? We're actually doing really well. It's uh, obviously it was a bit of a uh, when it all hit it was a bit of a, a head turner and a. Head shaker, you know, in our lifetimes, I've never quite seen anything like this before. But uh, the whole family made, I had one son who lived in New York and he came home, which was good. So we're all here, all seven of us piled into the house, like like the good old days, like when everybody was in school and a big family dinners. And we've just kept uh, creating, you know, my two of my sons are filmmakers. The other is a, a, a singer songwriter. My wife is a painter. So we're just we give ourselves targets, you know. We need four paintings this week. We need we need two short films, you know, and we just keep keep creating and keep having fun, and and uh, we're doing really really well. That that sounds great. I think that's what Mark and I are doing as well. Just trying to work and create, making little short movies, writing little scripts uh, and stuff like that. And uh, I think that's really. Uh, really a good use of this time and then spending it with family and of course all the good dinners and uh, putting on the music like I guess uh, the other day I made a homemade lasagna and I put on the Godfather soundtrack so I got really into the mood there. <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So uh, let's start out. Um, Mark, where did it all begin for you with music? Uh was it something you heard on the radio? Was it a movie score? Was it uh, a musician you saw on stage? Where did it all begin for you in music? Well, I think I'm one of those fortunate ones where it just was always there for me. Uh, never questioned my mind that this was my primary interest in life. Uh, I mean, the goals, the specific goals of it became clearer as I went forward, but um, it was always just I... It was always in the house, which which didn't hurt this process either. My mother is a professional violinist. My father was a professor of of history and art and and music. And um, so they there would be string quartet concerts, you know, in the house on the weekends. And my mother was always putting on symphonies, uh, you know, at nighttime. And so I, I grew up in a very musically rich household. But it was it was what I wanted. It was what I was drawn to anyway. So it was there, and I just availed myself of it from a very early age. Well, it's amazing. You come from a Renaissance household, and you know, you know your seven family, uh, seven figure family is a series of Renaissance people. Um, 
is, do you have some sort of, um, I imagine that you have some um, catharsis in dealing with the arts, but do you also have like a way to one-up each other? Oh, well, I'm going to write a symphony today. Well, I'm going to do a 35-foot <laughs> canvas. You know, who outdoes each other? Um, I think that sort of happens naturally. It is a bit of a competitive family. And, uh, you know, my wife walked in the other day with two paintings she did in a day. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> I better finish this score here. <laughs> um, and then, then my son, who will be moping around, he'll, he'll come and say, oh, I finished that film. Okay, so I'm, I'm back in the club now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, but it's all done in... in the great thing about our family is that, is that we all know what the trials and tribulations of being an artist are, so we're very supportive of one another. Yes, there's some friendly competition, but we'll all be the first to come in and say, you know, oh, that's beautiful, and oh, you, you feel stuck, well, you know, maybe try this, or, or, you know, just really help each other out. That's that's great. Uh, and going back, you know, to your roots, do you remember the first instrument you purchased or played on and what song you played? And, you know, the, the your first uh, memory of actually like, oh, man, I'm actually playing this song that I like. Well, there was always a piano in the house and I always used to sit around on the piano and just pick out things. And uh, I hated piano lessons. Uh I, I quit those several times, many times over my my lifetime. But I always would go back and just sit down. And my mother says that I would actually um, tell little stories and accompany myself on the piano. And uh, I have a vague recollection of that. I was pretty young. She put a she was a violinist, so she put a violin in my hands at a very young age, which I I immediately became pretty proficient at. But although. I could play really fast, and I liked playing fast, but I, I couldn't vibrato. I could never get that thing where the sound was really beautiful. And then, because she was a working violinist, she took me to uh, um, for all her orchestra rehearsals. And I, I do remember with great clarity, I heard uh, a Bach cantata being played uh, around Christmas time. She would do these Christmas concerts, a Bach cantata, and I don't know if um, people realize this, but Bach wrote for trumpet in a way that very few people ever have before or since. And um, in fact, sometimes they're known as the Bach trumpets. Um, and I heard this and it just enthralled me. I said, what's that instrument? Yes, I know that's a trumpet. Okay, but it's, it's played in a way I'd never heard before. And that was probably the first thing that where I revolted against my mother and the violin and said, I want to play that. I want to do that. And of course, the trumpet was something she knew nothing about, um, but she was supportive. And I played violin and trumpet for a couple of years together. And then she saw that the trumpet was my real love and uh, acquiesced. <laughs> and I, and um, I remember taking um, the, buying the first trumpet and uh, we took it to a... a in the neighborhood, I, we were living in the middle of New York State at the time, a, a guy who was well known as, the, as the, the professional trumpet player in that time, and he played the horn. He said, yes, that's a good one. You should buy him that horn. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. And do you remember the first song you played on your trumpet? Um, well, I was trying to emulate that Bach, and I was trying to emulate the Haydn Trumpet Concerto, which I had come to know uh, during that time. 
I think I don't remember the very first one, but I know that from an early age I was trying to emulate the Haydn Trumpet Concerto, and I think oh, that was the first sort of real piece that, you know, a, a legitimate piece for the instrument that I that I was emulated and and eventually uh, performed. Nice. And it was was that was it shortly after that where you found your passion for jazz? Well, that happened, uh, yeah, a number of years later. I was in high school, and my parents um, moved. We moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. And this can be traumatic for a you know, young 14-, 15-year-old um, person. And, you know, new friends, new school, new everything. And uh, I remember I had... I. Another interesting thing that that had occurred though is I got interested in electronics. I was building, you know, Heathkit radios and little amplifiers and fooling around with microphones and 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 that becomes, of course, a very influential part of my life later on. But um, so I built radios and things like this, and I came to the West Coast and I was fooling around on my radio, and I came across this station, of which I'd never heard before. We were living in the San Francisco area. Uh, in in the East Coast, we'd been living in a more rural area, and now that I'm in a more urban environment, there was a jazz radio station, and I heard this music, and it was one of those completely transformative periods or moments, I should say, where I just said, "What is that? That I need to know about that," and it started really a lifelong exploration of that genre. Very cool. I like that. Is there a misconception about trumpet? I mean, you look at a piano, you go 88 keys, or if you have a Bosendorp, you have, what, 98 keys? It's a bit intimidating. Does somebody look at a trumpet and go, well, how difficult could that be? It's only got three keys. How, do you, how has it become so dynamic? Well, I, I actually think it's sort of the opposite. You, you can sit in front of the 88 keys, and, and even a, you know, a two-year-old can put their hand on the keyboard and press down, and, and a, the sound of the piano comes out. Um, very few people can pick up a trumpet and get any sort of a pleasing or a musical sound out of it just by picking it up. There, there's a learning curve on this instrument that is probably one of the harder ones um, <clears throat> of, of any instrument around. So I think it takes a real fortitude. It takes a real passion to really get, to become a trumpet player, to push through that first barrier and then the fact that there are only three buttons and yet you have to create all these notes well that becomes a function of this which is a very um how should we say <laughs> a difficult little muscle to to really train and to do the job well it's not designed to do what it's to do what a trumpet player asks it to do and it takes some rather rigorous practicing and consistent practicing to keep the a trumpet player or any brass players really keep the lips doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, that I remember, you know, I, I was in band. I didn't play uh, trumpet. I did clarinet and saxophone, but I remember tightening those uh, embouchure muscles <laughs> to get yep. to play for long periods of time. And I always admired, you know, the brass, the trumpets, the French horns, and how they got, you know, all the notes and scales out of the, you know, just the three little keys. So uh, I love it. <laughs> and yeah. you've been practicing for many years. 
I have been at it for quite a while, yeah, and it's it's. I can tell you, it's still uh, a challenge. It's nothing that I, I think the most. Um, I, I, one of my sons became almost a professional athlete, and he played you know sports all the way through college, and and uh, I noticed that I think that's the only other activity that and maybe a ballet dancer who the rigorousness of the consistent training is is. Brass players have to live that same sort of life. If you don't put in an hour, two hours a day, at least six days a week, um, you lose it. It just goes away. There you go. Um, and so you've worked with uh, a bunch of musicians uh, from Van Morrison uh, to Joni Mitchell. Uh, but before we get into that, how how did it come up? Uh, to be that you got into the motion picture scores, movie music? Well, I um, had, the, had this passion. I mean, I had this background in classical music. I had this interest in jazz. And then I had this interest in electronics. And the, probably the other culminating moment of my life was when I heard my first synthesizer. And this, of course, was a marriage of music and electronics. And that became the other sort of jumping off point for really the explorations that I did in my 20s. And uh, I never went to college. I'm self-taught. But I had this interest in classical music, in brass, in jazz, and electronic music. And it set me on this course, which um, led me through a lot of different types of music, free jazz and fusion and, and even some, you know, some electronic, like the music of Maurice Jarre and all those early pioneers of electronic crossover music. Um, and it put me in this world where I was developing this sort of fusion, this crossover music of, of sort of classical electronic with, with hints of world music. And anyway, I made a piece of music Really, I was trying to get myself a record deal, and I didn't get the deal. And it just, I sent it out to everyone I knew, is what you do. You know, you, you, you produce your music, you send it out, and you promote it to everyone you can possibly think of promoting it to, and then you keep doing it. That's, that's how you survive as an artist. And um, it fell into the hands of a filmmaker. And he said, that's really cool. That would make great music for my film. Who is this guy? And he tracked me down. And that's how the film music career came to me, really. Was was that for the movie Never Cry Wolf? It was. It was. So, Carol Ballard heard this piece and said, I think this is shows a lot of potential. And I think Disney was completely freaked out because Carol, <laughs> Carol was going to go hire this guy who'd never done it before, who had no experience. And they said... Well, he better be cheap. <laughs> and I was, because I was a first-timer. I'd never done this before. And um, But I worked, you know, I worked my tail off. I was working seven days a week, you know, 15, 16-hour days, just trying to teach myself how, how does this work? How do you get music to really help tell a story like this? That, that that's great and you actually from then on you know they made the right decision because you were doing one to two scores a year basically since then right very true I, I i sort of never looked back after that i mean the first 
it might have been a year or so before I got my next one, but then you're right. It's just the momentum picked up and it's and it's never stopped. And I don't want it to stop. I think that the, the thing I love about film music is that every story, you can find a unique mu music vocabulary to help tell that story. And especially the more unique and wonderful the film is, it can really demand of you to find a, a, a wonderful music vocabulary to help tell that story and it can be unique and therefore it demands of you that you learn something a little bit new you do it something in a way you've never quite done it before and uh, I, I just love that well we're thrilled to have you on the show because one of the things we want to talk about is little fires everywhere and that seems like you've got characters that are complete opposites of one another and it seems like maybe this was a stretch for you to create two themes that felt like they intertwined I mean even the main theme um, kind of feels like it's a dance between structure and chaos or maybe proper versus artsy which kind of puts Reese Witherspoon's character against um, Kerry Washington's character um, am, am I kind of on the right path with the duality or am I stretching no you're 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 very eloquently <laughs> describing what we set out to do so I'm I'm very glad that it that we we managed to to get to communicate that to you um, Obviously, you have these two very, very disparate characters who are attracted to each other, and then, of course, um, ended up, you know, almost destroying each other. So, um, and I think the the thing worth noting about this particular project, also, this this was a collaboration between me and Isabella Summers, who is uh, the machine from the band Florence and the Machine, and we're sort of. I mean, we, we ended up really liking each other <laughs> and not wanting to destroy each other at all, but we come from very, very different worlds as well. And that was part of the reason, I think, that the music um, supervisor and the ABC music department, uh, Don and Mary, they, they put us together and wanted to make sure that this could be something because they felt that this sort of, again, a marriage of two very disparate personalities could perhaps create a unique score for this rather unique story. Um, so it is, is and I got together and we said, all right, well, we're not just going to, you know, a lot of the times when you have two composers working on something, you say, well, you take the action stuff, I'll take the love stuff, and then next week you'll do the love stuff. Well, you know, we, we didn't want to do that. We, we said, look, let's really sit in a room together. Let's find out, let's create something that's greater than just the sum of our parts. Let's really find out a unique vocabulary that the two of us generate together, working together, that is something that she would never do and something that I would never do that really is something um, special for this particular show. So that, that took a little doing, but once we got that, um, I think that duality that you observe comes from that. You know, she, she could come up with these really hooky pop sort of ideas but then I could add the complexity of, of an orchestral, you know, backdrop to it. Or I could put this sort of weird minimalistic thing and then she could superimpose this hook against it. And um, it ended up really being very productive and I think very effective. Well, it, it is effective. And in a way, wouldn't you almost describe that as jazz itself? The mixing of things that you wouldn't think go together and they have a harmony and, you know, have their own individual solos at times? Well, I think you you actually actually could, but I mean that's that's I've taken that sort of approach, that jazz approach of just superimposing stuff and and uh, 
improvising here and there. That that's been part of my process for so long that it it's hard to sort of think of it as a, <laughs> as anything special. But I think you're right in that it isn't part of a I mean, a lot of other people's process. So um, it's just part of, become part of mine through years and years of, of loving doing that. Uh, one of the questions I had about working with Hulu and working on TV, you've also done the work for for once the ABC show. Um, what are kind of the rigors and limitations of TV? I, I, one of the things I noticed is when you watch Once, you have commercials, so you have to build music crescendos towards a commercial break. But something like Hulu, which, as far as I know, will never have commercials. So why is the why is the structure of a TV show on a streaming platform like that not take on more of a cinematic quality? Why does it still feel compartmentalized between the commercials? Well, um, there is a... F- uh, version of Hulu that does have commercials and <clears throat> Little Fires was in the traditional format of acts out. Um, you must have the uh, expensive version of Hulu. <laughs> um, but we we had the exact same restrictions on, on Little Fires that we do on, on Once Upon a Time where every 12 minutes or so you have to wrap it up and you have to go boom and then there's a, a black and then you start up again. Um, and that is, that is part of just the rigors of television. That's sort of the, the time tested, you know, commercial tested form for, for most television. Uh, I ha- I have done, I did a, a, um, <clears throat> something for Apple recently where there weren't commercials and that you could play f- through as, as just a, uh, as a small movie and you don't have those breaks. And, and then you're exactly right. Then you have a chance to really think of it as in a very much more cinematic way. I, I, I like that aspect. And, you know, going through your different scores and films that you have done music for, you know, everything from Disney to, you know, straight horror like the Crazies remake or Conjuring, is there a certain... Uh, research you do or uh, do you take any of the instruments or electronics that you kind of conjure up uh, to to step into a mood uh, that goes to either horror or family-friendly Disney? Um, <clears throat> I, I do do research on, on a project if it's if it's a vocabulary that I'm not that familiar with um, I know with Isa, um, I would ask her a lot, you know, all right, we really want to simplify this, you know, what would you do as a pop producer? You know, you come here and, <laughs> and mix this one. Show me what, show me that stuff, you know, because I, I'm, I'm a pretty good mixer myself of my own material, but, you know, I've never mixed a number one pop single in my life, I'll admit it, and she has, so... <laughs> um, you know that sort of thing uh, was great with her in the room, and if there's things like that that I don't know and I don't ha- have an expert in the room, I-, I will do the research. I remember when I did um, a film noir with Brian De Palma a number of years ago, and he was referencing Bernard Herrmann, of course, and and um, uh, oh, who, who else was it? My mind's gone blank. The guy who wrote West Side Story. Um, Oh, uh, oh my goodness! Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I'll, I'll think of it and 
overcome <laughs> all this, but at a later point. Um, anyway, I researched those guys and, and bought some of their scores and, and listened to some of that stuff just to sort of put myself in the mood of that time. If you're going write to a, write a piece of music that needs to marry up against a picture of, of 1940, then you want to at least be an impressionist. I, I, I never copy this stuff. I never try to make it sound like it was actually made in 1940. But I want to be an impressionist. I want to be able to take the vocabulary and twist it into a, into a new and interesting way of looking at that. Nice. And I, th- I think, was it Leonard Bernstein that did West Side Story? <laughs> Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What a football. <laughs> I, it was on the tick of my tongue because when you said yeah. Bernard Herrmann, I was like, okay, there's something that started making me think of that. So, all right. Great, great, great. Um and so, I guess moving through your career, you are about to tackle uh, a new one, or you might have already done so with Bill and Ted Face the Music, correct? I am. In fact, I was just uh, sending in some revisions before we started this uh, podcast. It's, uh, I think it's hysterical. I, I, it makes me laugh every time. <laughs> Every time I play it back, I'm, I'm laughing at some nuance that uh, that these guys are doing. I mean, Alex and Keanu are just, <laughs> they're really good. They're good at bringing these guys back 25 years later. And Dean Pariseau has done a brilliant job, I think, of directing this. Because it's, you know, filmmaking has come a, changed a lot in 25 years. And the, those first movies were pretty rough around the edges to begin with. And he's really found a nice balance of, of something that won't feel old and 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 yet will is a great tribute to those characters and that style of filmmaking he's balanced it really really well right because the bill and ted films are they they rely heavily on music and they have their own you know score and music feel and so did you get to talk to keanu or alex or the filmmakers uh, to any extent to like just talk about what they thought about the music and you bringing in the new the new wave stuff uh, and mix it with the old. Well, a, a project like this takes takes quite a number of people working on it. There's a music supervisor who's doing a tremendous job bringing in the songs and helping put all the stuff that's on camera. There's you know. There's bands on camera that they go back to history and they bring back all sorts of musical characters and all of those characters have to be playing. And uh, that that's a job. That's a whole nother job for a whole nother team of you know, people doing that. Um, I'm writing the original score and uh, we've decided on that, that we're actually just going to sort of play it straight. And the straighter you play it, the funnier it is. I mean, when uh, I can't give away any spoilers, but um Let's just say that when things go bad, the music takes it very seriously. And when things are very heroic, the music takes it even more seriously. And it's and it's just funny. It's just really, really funny. We're, we're very much looking forward to it, for sure. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought up the word nuance, because that's what Dean Parisot is known for. I mean, he did a tremendous job with uh, Galaxy Quest. I mean, that's a movie that you watch it never fails to deliver and you're always going to find something, um, you know, uh, upon different explorations. Um, but one of the, uh, the, the last movie w- was scored by, uh, David Newman and he brought in Steve Vai and he was an important por- part right. of the score. 
Are, do you have any specialists, any soloists, anybody rock and roll you're going to be working with or are working with for Signature uh, Sound? No, no. And, and this one, uh, the producers haven't really given us that, the luxury of that sort of budget, unfortunately. Um, we're, we're, um, and actually, you know, I think Dean made a, a pretty interesting choice to, to not uh, rely on... on so much guitar stuff on, on this one. He, he took a slightly different path. After all, these guys are 25 years older. They have kids. They live in suburbia. They're, they're not, you know, the, the roving teenagers that they were. So there's a, there's a, he sets the stage in a, in a way that I think is, is pretty great to allow the story to unfold. I want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, so I, I like your album, um, Castalia, uh, Castalia, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, can you talk a little bit about making that album, and then maybe working with uh, Terry Bozio from because uh, sure. he worked with Frank Zappa a little bit. Did you ever get a chance to meet or talk with Frank Zappa at all? And how did the album uh, come about? Well, Terry and I grew up together. There was a uh, a group of us, Peter Maudu, Terry Bozio, Pat O'Hearn, uh, a couple of other guys um, who all knew each other in high school and then uh, stayed friends, well, until now. <laughs> Still friends with them. Um, known them a long, long time. And we worked together in the San Francisco Bay Area for a long time and they would play on all my demos and things like that and I would play on their demos and and uh, of course, Terry was was a star and went to L.A. and got the job with Zappa. Pete got the job with Jean-Luc Ponty and then the L.A. Express. And um, because guitar and drums were much more um, commercially <laughs> um, viable instruments than the trumpet, I had to sort of get my own record deal to, to uh, start working at the level they were. But eventually, yes, I made my way down to L.A. and I would visit. And I, I remember going to Frank's house a few times and meeting him and uh, and hanging out with Terry and the whole that whole Zappa band of that period, which was a lot of fun and very inspiring, obviously. Um, in fact, uh, Peter and Pat and I had a band called Group 87. We were signed to Columbia Records. Um, and Terry and a couple of other the Zappa alumni played on the record. And then Peter and Pat and I toured that band for a little while. And uh, we made a second record for Capitol Records a number of years later. And then um, it, just, it, it was too hard. It, it just wasn't working. We, it was, uh, it, we couldn't get it out of the expensive hobby realm and into a, a money-making venture. So and by that time I'd been offered a, a solo deal with Wyndham Hill, and Patrick had a deal somewhere. Anyway, we went our separate ways. A very long explanation to answer your question because when Virgin Records offered me my first record deal with them, uh, I decided I wanted to sort of revisit the style, a lot of the things that we'd been exploring in Group 87, a little more fusion, a little. Um, oriented, a little more performance oriented, but still with, with sort of uh, production that, that Weather Report and some of the other great bands of that time were exploring. And that's how I got 
Patrick and Bozio and a lot of those guys back into the studio with me, and that's how we made that record. Oh, that's wonderful. I, that's 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 good to hear. And I love that there's like this community of musicians, you know, across the nation where you could just talk and talk music and then get, you know, people then you know, even friends to play on the album and just come up and create something great. <laughs> Yeah, that was a that record really was a culmination of a lot of things. I think David Torn is on that record, and I in that time I had met him and had played in his band and played on one of his records. And Mick Karn from the band Japan is on there because I'd um, worked done some work with David Sylvian and met a bunch of those guys. So there, uh, Paul McCandless I think is from the jazz world. I mean, there's a lot of very that was the great thing about working with the Virgin is that they supplied the resources to uh, for me to get a lot of these really wonderful players uh, all to come together. And, and really, I don't think a lot of them had ever played together. Mick Karn had certainly never played with, with Bozio. <laughs> it, was, it was all fun. That's wonderful. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. You know, as a composer, you're seeing things like dailies and you're talking to the director who could use words like rousing or emotional and all these things. Um, one of the most impacting movies, or at least the ending in the last 20 years, had to be The Mist. So <laughs> having to having to work on a film like that that has that whopper of an ending um, and a movie like Warrior, I, I think that still has that emotional impact without the music. How do you have that dance between what needs music, what doesn't, and just, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you weave the magic when it's not happening on screen? Well, <laughs> well there's a process that, that fortunately allows you to, to experiment uh, before you um, put in any serious money or serious time doing something that you're not sure of. Um, it's called temping. Putting temporary music into a film, and a director, a picture editor, will work either on their own or with a music editor, sometimes with the composer themselves, and just try stuff. Like I remember on the the mist, Frank Darabont took that piece, um, "Dead Can Dance," Lisa Gerard piece, and and put it in there, and uh, and played it all the way to the end, and. We immediately said, "There's really something there. There's, there's, a, it just, it heightens that whole sense of of uh, alternate reality, and then ultimately this tragedy, which is just almost unbearable. And uh, and yet, even after you know, brilliant music editors coming in and, and uh, trying to edit this piece of music, it only sort of fit." well in one spot and because it just if it's a pre-recorded piece of music you can't do anything to it and so Frank, Frank just uh, turned to me and said well you'll fix it right you'll fix it so I, I remember having to record an entire bridge section you know that I wrote to put in the middle of this Lisa Gerard piece and then having to extend it to the then write a whole nother piece at the end and make it all sort of seem seamless and seem like it had all been written by a single person at a single time. Um, but without that sort of temping process where you try stuff and you, we wouldn't have had the um, confidence in a choice like that for me to go in and spend all that tremendous amounts of time. 
but you can see, you get that moment, you know, you put up a, a song or you put up a piece of other score or something up against a scene and it just, you know, the hair on your arm stands up and you go, all right, we're, we're going there. That's, we're doing something like that. Well, that's excellent to hear, especially because most of the times when we speak to composers, the temp process or temp tracks are the bane of their existence. You know, oh my gosh, you want me to mimic this person. You want me to emulate another person. So it's fine. It's interesting to hear that it's inspiring. Uh, is that sort of the exception of the rule? Well, it's, a, it's an attitude. You know, it really is an attitude. I certainly have had directors who come in and say, I love my temp score. Just do something just like that. And I've, I've believe me, I've, I've had not so pleasant situations like that as well. But what I'll usually do when that happens now, that I'm a little more a little more experienced in this, is I'll turn to them and say, oh, that's fantastic. I, I love that you love it. I love that it's making your pick. Now, at that moment, you know, when the French horn rises, shouldn't that be like a beat later? And he said, well, yeah, of course, but it's temp. I say, okay, good. Now, do you like that flute? Is that your favorite? Oh, I, well, I actually don't like the flute. I wish the flute were, okay, good. So we could get rid of the, and, but you, Get them talking about this, and next thing you know, they've got a, two pages of complaints about their temp, and then you, then you can sort of give them something that's. But you have to give them what they do like about it, and that's the emotion, and you have to really understand. All right, there's that chord that swells when she turns around and starts crying. If you don't do a chord like that when she turns around and Scott starts crying, there's no way in hell you're ever going to get this person to like your music. There's certain things that you just learn in this process that, look, that does work, and you shouldn't violate those things. But then there's things that you can improve. There's things that you can be, find a slightly more unique approach. There's things that you can make your own. And so it's an, it's an attitude. I very early had to adopt the point of view that tempting is an educational process, and we should learn from it. And if you can learn from it, then it can be very, very valuable. It can save you weeks of <laughs> wasted time. If you really do learn from the temping process what is valuable, what is right, and what, how you should approach certain things. I like that. Well, and you know what you do? You really bring emotion to the films that you work on. I think my favorite, with, hands down, has got to be Warrior. There's just something mm -hmm. to that. And, you know, what you do working with the Beethoven and then taking it on your own and you know, bringing in these really emotional beats to it. There's a, a four-beat motif in uh, Sparta one night. It's around the seven-minute mark, and it's just that four-note, bum, 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 and it just brings so much to the story. So what went into that? Do you remember the stories, uh, uh, how that came to be, and just that score in general? I, I remember that score very well. I mean, Gavin is one of my favorite directors. He... he, he make such emotionally gripping films. I mean, Warrior, The Accountant, I mean, they're, they're just, they're really splendid, splendid films. Um, you mentioned the Beethoven in, in, the, um, in Warrior. That's actually sort of a humorous moment. Um, you know, it's a training scene, and, and you have this, Frank Grillo plays this sort of innovative trainer who puts on Beethoven symphonies for his fighters and says listen to the Beethoven listen to the Beethoven because he wants them to find this rhythm right and the tempo of the of the Eroica symphony is perfect so he's, he's training them to this and and so as a joke 
and I really did say, mean this as a joke, I said to Gavin and the, I said, well, we should probably try the symphony just so we get it out of our heads, and, and we've said we've done it, and then we don't have to worry about it, and then I'll score for real. And so I went in, because they had tried like the actual symphony, a recording of the symphony playing, and then nobody really liked it. Um, but I said, well, I should do it. You know, I should just try it, and, and it'll be silly and stupid, and 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 but it, but at least we will have gotten it out of our our heads. And, stuff. and of course, I tried it, and that's what's in the film. <laughs> that's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> that's uh, that's great. to be actually quite effective and uh, and just really moving, and it it, it's, it comes in a crucial point in the film where you really do want to get a sense of the the potential of this, our character becoming a hero, which is what he does, you know, both of them in their own way. Cool. Real quick follow-up to that. I, I saw a Hollywood roundtable where composers, I think it was Hans Zimmer and maybe um, Henry Jackman discussing, maybe Thomas Newman discussing what they thought was the most heroic note. I think some people thought it was E, some people thought it was C. Uh, again, back to that four-note motif, what is, in your mind, the most heroic note if there is one. Oh my goodness well I don't think there's a single note because because music is all about juxtaposition and and evolution and uh, there are certain keys I think E major A major you know those are if I'm gonna write something that's that's gonna feel that heroes going off to war those those are good keys the sharp keys, even B major. But in terms of a single note, it's not a single note. It's going to be that interval, like the rising fourth or the rising fifth. Da, 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 da. Just the rising four, fifth, or sixth like that. that that's going to do it. That's going to do it. Get your journey started. You know. And you know, and I and I, I like that because I remember, you know, watching the nineteen eighty nine Batman film, you know, Prince and Denny Elfman did that. And I remember throughout the whole nineteen eighty nine Batman movie, it was a very gloomy and dark uh, score, but at the very end when Batman's looking up kind of at the bat signal, it's like a half step up just of the same the same progression but it just sounds that much more heroic yeah. <laughs> but just with that little half step up yeah yeah you know, perfectly yeah. so I, I got that i get it um so uh, another one of my i think a very very underrated movie as far as movie and score goes which is i love this score so much was your work uh, also with frank darabont on the majestic in 2001 because i love that 50s era and even mixing in with the B movie with Bruce Campbell within the movie. I just, I love that. And uh, what was it like to do the score to the majestic? Cause like you, you had the jazz piano scenes and uh, the classical swells and crescendos. And then of course, you know, the B movie stuff. Uh, I, I just, it was like a perfect culmination of ingredients that just, I, I loved it so much. Oh, good. I'm glad that that movie sort of got, got a bad start or something and it never really made it the mark that I thought it should have. I think it is really a beautifully made film and, um, and Jim Carrey is, is really good in it. And, uh, and that I forget the gal's name, but she's a favorite of Frank's. He, he works with her a lot and she's wonderful as well. Um, 
yeah it was it was it was the first time i'd ever worked with frank it was sort of a dream come true and uh we got along great and obviously continued and did a bunch of stuff afterwards but um he's frank loves music I mean, he's just a, a music music guy and uh we would have just long chats and listen he'd love to listen i mean he brought me in early and said i found this guy jim cox and he's he can record all this original ragtime stuff and of course jim cox is probably <laughs> one of the great great performers of that type of music so he'd found the right guy and and it was just um yeah, it was just a tremendous experience all, all the way through. We had a, a beautiful orchestra, I remember, recorded here in L.A., and just a, a wonderful experience. Great. Um, and I would like to, I'd like to ask you, you know, since you've been in the music business for so long, what is your most thrilling music experience, whether it be seeing a musician on stage, tuning up the orchestra and band, the first time you heard this certain song, what's your most thrilling music experience? Oh my God. Well, I've been so fortunate. I've had, had a number of them. Uh, there have been several times when I've heard pieces of music mine, of mine played by an orchestra that, that have really got me. You know, some of the early times before I was, uh, you know, it's quite something when you have 60, 70 people in a room and they're all playing something you've written. It's just, it's a thrill. So there have been a, several of those. I remember there was a point on a river runs through it where it just, it was a gripping moment. But as a performer, I'll, I'll never forget playing trying to remember where it was. It might have been Madison Square Garden, something like that, with Joni Mitchell and an orchestra. Uh, and it was a tremendous... Peter Erskine was playing. I mean, it was a really great... Even Herbie Hancock might have sat in that night. I mean, it was just it was just one of those glorious nights where I just sort of pinched myself and said, I can't believe that I'm actually a part of this, that I, <laughs> there's a role for me to play here with Joni Mitchell and the New York Philharmonic and Herbie Hancock and Peter Erskine. I mean, it was just like, wow, I, I'm actually here <laughs> doing and, this. <laughs> and you know, you know that, like, that's like what I would imagine most of the audience feels like too. And it's cool to hear somebody on stage creating the music feel the same way. And I think there's that connect there. And I just think, you know, like hearing a, an orchestra and band just tune up uh, and having all of this talent on stage, it's just like, just, it gets, gives me chills just to think about that. Yeah, it's quite a large ensemble, you know, well-performed in a, in a great concert venue. That's, that's what I miss in this whole last two months, you know, it's just, going down and hearing the Philharmonic or just going into a funky club and hearing a great band. I mean, it's just that, that thing of people coming together and playing music together. That's, that's one of the great joys of our, of our civilization. Right. And, and additionally to that, uh, so do you, what is the most curious, what is the most bizarre recording you own, rather, whether it be a, a record, an MP3, whether it be like outtakes of people cursing when they mess up in the orchestra or, you know, just <laughs> something really odd that's happened or like just the most curious recording you own? <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. Wow. You know, it was interesting the the other night about about two weeks ago, all all of my I have three sons and they're all in their twenties and uh, they're all here living here and, and we 
decided to have a second bottle of wine after dinner and go and listen to dad's vinyl collection. And so we piled into my office and, and we went, each of us in turn would go and pick a piece of vinyl and stick it on and see if anybody could tell what it was. And I hadn't been through these boxes in a long time. And there was some wild stuff in there. There And some of it recordings of, you know, vinyl of stuff that I recorded like many, many, many years ago, which I said, I don't know what that is. I said, oh my God, that sounds like me playing. <laughs> Uh, you know, weird bands that only made one record that I was in, uh, strange stuff. Something that, that I came across the other day, though, this, if you guys remember a record called My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, it was a Brian Eno, David Byrne, you know, David Byrne, yes. Talking Heads. And it was one of the first records to actually use found samples. You know, samplers hadn't been invented yet, but they took recordings of stuff and then made tracks around these recordings of people speaking and, and ministers chanting and all sorts of it. And I have a, a cassette of the first edition of that record that has, I think, two or three songs on it that never made it to the final because they couldn't clear, they couldn't get the rights to use the samples that they had used. So that's an oddity that I have. That that's awesome. I, I love that because we uh, both Mark and I love our record collections, and uh, I'm glad that you have one. And do you is it like a lot of classical and jazz? Is it eclectic amongst all everything? Over, a lot of soundtracks all over the map. I have a the great prestige, the complete Miles Davis prestige collection on vinyl. I have what else was in there? There was yeah, there was an old recording of the Rite of Springs, Stravinsky, and some Shostakovich, and then a bunch of jazz. I, when in um, when I was studying jazz in my twenties, I just collected blue, all the Blue Note records. I have tons of the old Blue Note records with the early Freddie Hubbard and you know Sam Rivers and you know, all those great guys who were making recording for Blue Note back those days. Nice, nice. No, I'm a, I'm a fan too. I think whenever I go to a record store out here again, uh, as well as before, you know, my one of my first stops is that jazz section. So uh, always, always looking for the good jazz, for sure. Yeah, well, this might be an obscure one. I'm not sure. Uh, there's a Japanese composer named Yuji Ono, um, who did the Lupin uh, TV show back in the 70s. And he did a... Uh, a jazz take of his own kind of Italian score anyway, but it's this really great jazz called the Yuji Ono Trio. And um, oh. I, it's, it's not real. I don't know if it's rare, but it's just something I enjoy quite a bit. I was curious if you'd ever heard of it or him. No, you got me on that one. <laughs> uh, that, that is cool. And um, is there any, any um, sort of music moments in film that still stick with you uh, over the years that doesn't necessarily have to be your own work, but is there any sort of musical piece or part of a film that just like just inspires and just you you just won't forget? Well, it's interesting what came to mind immediately as you said that, and I'm trying to remember. I think it's the end of Godfather Two, and I think it's the sequence. It's been a long time, but this this, this is a flash answer came <clears throat> bouncing right up at me as you asked that question. And I believe it's when Al Pacino's just sitting 
in the family room there and thinking about what he's done. And it's a long, long pullout. And it's all music. And it's just, you know, that fantastic Nina Rota theme. I think Nina Rota is just... Because if, if there is another moment that I have to pick, it's also Nina Rota, believe it or not, in, in that Fellini film, the end of uh, when all the circus performers are, are have come out and are, are marching. Uh, I don't remember which movie that is, but the image is very strong. But I don't know, Nina Rota is probably my favorite film composer. And because he, he could just... He could be whimsical and fun and light and also just tear your heart out. I uh, just think think the world of him. Excellent. Mo- oh, yeah. okay. uh, Mr. Isham, question for you. So um, your love of trumpet obviously goes without saying. When was a turning point for you? What song or what what what? stage in your life did you think oh my gosh I, I can do it now you know whereas once you tried the Bach concertos and they didn't work and what do you think you uh well I think as a kid when I I did uh I did play the Haydn trumpet concerto and I could play that that was a tremendous sense of I can actually do this and as a jazz player um I've, I've had some some I played it. There's a, a jazz player named David Liebman, who's uh, not a household name jazz guy, but he's really one of the, probably the finest saxophone players in the world. And uh, he played with Miles Davis, and and he came to San Francisco and he put together a quartet, and uh, he asked me to be in it. And that was probably the first time that I was in a band of someone who, well, someone who'd played with Miles and and was sort of in the top echelon of of jazz players and I played with him for about three years and it was a tremendous learning experience and he liked the band well enough to make make a record with us and I think that was a sense of oh I, I may have arrived here as, as a jazz player. Well, well, well that's great because um, one of the things that I've been wondering is when I think of jazz I think of lightning in a bottle you know what you're seeing on a, a little corner of New Orleans or in a cafe or something you may never hear again and there's a lot of emotion and and uh, and feeling in what's being played uh, when Brian and I talk to composers they tell us about session musicians as world-class as they are they still are very mechanical they they play the notes they stop the notes uh, how does playing a trumpet uh, compare to how a session musician may play something on a clarinet where it's just the notes on the page and how, how do you take the emotion out of actually what am i trying to say <laughs> can you play trumpet without the emotion uh yeah you can play anything <laughs> without the emotion uh i don't know why you'd want to do that i think you know the great the great session musicians play what you put on the page and they put emotion into it i mean that's those are the guys you want on your session um the difference between some of those guys is is if you just say well we're in d minor just play that's where they they freeze up a little bit uh but if you put 
you know, the Mozart clarinet concerto in front of a great clarinetist, they can make you cry, you know, with the way they interpret it. Um, and their skill is taking the written page and interpreting it in a way that brings all the emotion in the world to that. The difference to a jazz player is that you can just say, all right, let's play the blues, and there's no, nothing on the page, there's just this idea of a 12-bar form, and they can improvise. It's just a different skill set. You can certainly find plenty of boring jazz musicians who play with very little emotion, but they, you know, they, they, improv, they improvise. You know, so to me, it's, it's always a question of, of telling a story and bringing an emotional impact to what you're doing, whether it's something that's on the page or whether it's something that you're making up on the spot. Uh, that, that, that's great. And then the last thing I want to ask is that when you do write for um, a movie or a TV show, do you write for specific instruments, even if you don't know how to play it, or do you write a theme on a piano and expect somebody to break it into you know, stems and little pieces? Or how, how does that process work? I, I write for specific instruments. I mean, I'm I'm well enough versed with pretty much every instrument <laughs> over the years. I've I've taught myself. Um, actually, for a period of time, I did actually teach myself how to play most instruments. Um, I, I've owned a clarinet, I've owned several saxophones, so I, I owned a flute, so I could play pretty much all the... I could play C major scale on pretty much any instrument you put in front of me. So I have a sense of what they do, what they do well, what you won't ask them to do, um, what's going to sound pretty terrible if you ask them to play. Um, having said that, I sit in front of a computer with a keyboard and I write. And a lot of it is I start with a piano sound just to get myself going. Modern music technology allows you to have samples of all any instrument that you can possibly think of so that I can build demos with the clarinet part and the bassoon part and the guitar part. I can build those demos now so they sound pretty real. But I'm still going to want to then print out that clarinet part, go into a room, put the that part on the stand and have someone play it. The the old school gotcha. way. Absolutely. That's great. <laughs> the the old school way. I, I, I love it that way. <laughs> that's the way it should yeah. be. Because um, that's where you get the emotion, you know. Right. Music technology is pretty fantastic, but the truth of the matter is, a sampled clarinet played by me in my studio is there's there's not a chance it's going to have the emotional impact of a good player. It's just it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So if I'm like on Little Fires Everywhere, here's a really good example. We had a limited budget. And so Isa and I would sit there every day and say, well, what are we going to do here in the computer? And what are we going to pay money to have played by real people? We have to make that decision. And we can't afford to write for instruments that we even that sound like shit on a computer or that we can't afford to have replaced by real players. And it was, we argued about this for months <laughs> as we were writing. And we would write for an instrument and I'd say, well, that sounds like hell. We're going to have to replace that. We ended up, believe it or not, replacing the drums, which she kept saying, we need to replace the drums. I said, drums is one of the things that, you know, every hip hop record in the world, every 
pop record for the last 25 years has sampled drums on it. You don't, we can use the samples. She said, no, trust me, for this sort of music, we, and she was right. We had Vinnie Caliuta come and play the drums, and it brought the music just to this whole other level. Very cool. Um, and our last question for you, uh, what after, after Bill and Ted, uh, what is next for you, Mark? Uh, I am in the process of starting a really interesting film. It's a, uh, a young filmmaker called Shaka King, and it is the story of Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton was the leader of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers, and he was, along with as history has showed us, many other civil rights leaders, he was targeted by uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI to be eventually assassinated. And it's his story, and it's really, really, really well told. And uh, I'm co-composing it with a guy named Craig Harris, who um, has been a part of that African-American jazz scene from the, the early 70s. And... Uh, was a part of it. He played with Sun Ra, he played with a lot of these uh, really revolutionary uh, musicians of that whole period. And he and I uh, have been put together to write the score for this movie, and it's it's, it's going to be pretty great. Um, I'm looking forward to that. It uh, looks like it's produced by Ryan Coogler and stars Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya. Um, yeah. that's, that looks, that's going to be great. Yeah. It's Very a, excited. Uh, Mark, thank you for joining us today um, on the show. We really appreciate it. Is there anywhere you want to tell any of the listeners uh, to go check you out online? Oh, yeah. The, the website is there. There's a bunch. And the Instagram that has stuff on it. Uh, it's all just Mark Isham. And, um, yeah, check out Little Fires. It's it's fun. It's fun. It's It's controversial. It's... You'll you'll argue with your neighbors about it. <laughs> <laughs> it. It is good stuff. We we thank you uh, so much for taking the time in the quarantine and the busy schedule, and we hope to uh, talk with you when Bill and Ted comes out again. <laughs> All right, anytime, boys. I'm always here. Thank you so much. All right, gentlemen. Appreciate thank your time. You. Yeah, thank you.